Welcome to The Power of a Graceful Leader with Alexis Thompson. Join us as we explore ways to access your deep inner wisdom, learn what it looks and feels like so that you can find your own path to integration, flow, and alignment, awakening the graceful leader within you. And now, here's your host, Alexis Thompson. Hi, and welcome back to the Power of Graceful Leadership podcast. Thanks for being with us as we're growing and reaching out across the globe. It's exciting times. Um, it is my deep and sincere pleasure and honor to introduce Jim Anderson to you, who will be my guest today as we walk through the Power of Graceful Leadership tenants. He is the founder um, and president of Key Connections, a leadership development coaching and consulting company located in Evergreen, Colorado. And after 15 years of frontline experience leading and engaging teams and navigating tremendous change, he's decided to venture out and start his own business. For the past 29 years, Key Connections has allowed Jim to focus his attention on creating and applying tools to support individuals and organizations in developing self-awareness, strengthening leadership skills, and consistently achieving desired results. Jim is also in there a dear friend, a soul brother, I dare say, um, for many lifetimes, a definite teacher, and a graceful human being in his own right. And if you've read The Power of a Graceful Leader and you hit the back of the book, you will have read there that there were some gratitudes that I shared for some human beings, some with us in 3D form and some not. Jim, thank God, is here with us. And I'd like to share with you that gratitude to kind of set the tone for this conversation with this wonderful human being. Jim Anderson is a shining example of grace and love in action. In my experience of knowing him, it is clear that grace and love have been one of the single most defining quests in his life. I am one of many benefactors of his commitment to this path. Jim is a cheerleader and a lover of all beings. He is the person you can't wait to share something good in your life with. As you know, he will fill you up with so much love and acceptance that your cup will runneth over. Though Jim and I are rather new to this journey into grace, I believe we have done this many times before in previous previous lives. As a result, we have an immense amount of fun awakening together. When he speaks, you lean in. You listen to each carefully chosen word and get lost in the world he is sharing with you. I look forward to many more earthly years of awakening alongside Jim. My heart bursts with love and joy for this friendship. Hi, Jim. Hi, Lexi. So good to be with you. Yeah, thank uh, you for... So appreciate um, those beautiful words. Well... Um, it definitely, when I was writing these gratitudes, they weren't from my mind at all. That, and that was a fun experience to have, um, to be able to express gratitude and have it be a completely heart-centered activity. Being a very person who likes to spend a lot of her time in her head, um, it was liberating for me and it was a gift to all of you. So thank you for being a catalyst for that love. I appreciate thank it. Thank you so much. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's a joy to be with you today. Yeah, you too. And, you know, when I say cheerleader, every time I shared a project or a pain that I was going through or a project I was thinking about, or you've shared one of your awesome projects, we've always just enjoyed a kind of a childlike curiosity, right? Uh, about, hey, what is that? And what do you want to do with that? And who's it for? And, you know, what if you didn't do it as much as what if you did do it? All of those really good inquiries. And um, so I went ahead and forged through and released during COVID, the book, The Power of a Graceful Leader, which you um, are obviously highlighted in. And in that experience, um, I had sent you early on, hey, here's the tenants that are coming through in my work. 
And I think I sent it to you only, quite honestly, because I needed the truth or a truth, right? A reflection back to me. And I knew I needed it with tenderness and love being how it was delivered. And I knew I could count on you for that. So um, I don't know that I've expressed that gratitude for that particular event before um, and wanted to take a moment to really thank you for um, being a really good mirror and being willing to put words to um, things that are manifesting and being manifest through the people around you. You're just so, it's a gift you have. Um, and it, it, I appreciate it. Yeah. It unleashes the power within me to be and do the thing that I'm here to be and do. And um, yeah, there's just not many souls and you're one of the rare ones to, for that. I'll actually never forget the call when you called to talk about that. Yeah. Uh, Just how moved I was by one, the sensitivity of awareness that is alive in you to be able to posit what you're inviting in this beautiful book. And then the other part for me is the courage uh, to, to awaken at that subtle level and then dare to notice it and trust it and then begin to give creative expression to it. Mm. And so uh, that phone call is forever in my heart. I just remember going away excited because, one, witnessing the courage and the depth of work that has been uh, kind of asked of you to give birth to this. And then the other part is you just posited my life with a bunch of other seeds of curiosity to make the inquiry that much more exciting and engaging for years to come. Yeah. (laughs) Really appreciate it. Oh, thank you very, very much. I appreciate that too. Um, There's one more gratitude because I haven't talked to you in a while and you, um, I have like three voicemails on my phone that I make sure I never erase. And one of them is yours. And I, you may or may not remember this call. But you left me this beautiful voicemail, um, just expressing your love for me. And at the towards the ends of the voicemail, expressing how wonderfully blessed my children were to have me as their mother. Yes. And I played that the other day, knowing that I was going to you know be in energy with you and wanting to connect to you before um, in the other realms. And every time I listen to it. I feel like the best version of myself as a mother. And I don't know of a better gift that you give someone as a parent than to in their parentness, because it's definitely not all lovely (laughs) to to be able to recognize the power, the good, the good and the, and the rightness along the journey that, that um, has happened. So, I mean, I, I could go on and on with gratitudes for you. Well, deeply appreciate it. Uh, the, the, the mutual love and appreciation that we share for me is uh, really the glue that continues to enrich our relationship. Mm-hmm. It's, uh, it's, a real, it's a real gift to me, and I'm deeply appreciative. Thank you. And I love laughing with you. It's just it's the best. It's the best. So essential. <laughs> it's essential, yeah. Okay. All right. So we're here to talk about the power of grace, right? Um, In your life as your own self leading your own adventure that you're here for. And as we both play in the realm of executive coaching and leadership development at various levels in the, in the world. um, I also would love all insights that you're willing and able to share 
in that realm, as far as what we're called to when we accept the baton to be leader of other souls and, and the seriousness and the levity that comes with that um, invitation. Beautiful. So let's start with what role does grace play and how does it exist in your life right now? I continue to, I, I would say it's a, it's a mysterious um, theme to me that continues to deepen mm -hmm. and expand and become subtler. And the subtler it is in my awareness, the more beautiful it becomes. And so I, I uh, would say I spent a whole lot of the front end of my life uh, in a contracted resistant stance, not okay with how it is, and then trying to apply my will to make it different so it'd be better, mm -hmm. only to find when the perceived future that was going to be better would become the current moment. It wasn't better for long before I was back to not okay with how it is. <laughs> so I think my first foray into grace was to turn my back to it, resist it, and try to pretend it wasn't. Yeah. And try to forge forward without it. And fortunately, that wore me down enough uh, that I reached a place of exhaustion and do surrender. That allowed me to begin to open to it. Yeah. And the thing that's most shocking to me is the degree to which I turned my back on it and tried to forge forward without it. I'm in awe that it didn't let me go altogether or abandon me. Mm. The fact that it patiently waited for me to come back home to it when it was time, and then it's loving acceptance to welcome me back. Uh, really has been transformative and what I would call my first introduction to grace really didn't happen until probably 10 or 15 years ago. Wow. Yeah. So yeah. It's, it's been a much later thing. Mm -hmm. And the other part now is the moment it accepted me back. Now my, it, it really piqued my curiosity to wonder into what would patiently wait for me to come home to it like that and then love me for all I'd done to avoid it and welcome me back. And so it's really become a curious inquiry. And what I continue to watch now is, oh, that grace comes from the source of who I've actually always been. Yes. Uh, and so uh, what I continue to awaken to is, oh, the grace that would wait is who I've always been. That's always been so patiently waiting, I jokingly say, patiently waiting for my sorry ass to stop pretending I was something else. <laughs> <laughs> I think that there's a lot of truth to that. And so when, for example, when we talk about grace in our body, which is leading into the next one about integrating mind, body, and soul, whatever that is for each person, um, I have come to, I use the word grace center to talk about where your kind of your heart chakra is and your solar plexus is. And, you know, when we think about chakras, we think about them as separate. Of course, they're not, right? But we, that's how we study them and we learn them. But these two particular energy streams, although close together, so it makes sense, seem to do a lot of business together when I'm in a graceful place. When I'm experiencing serendipities and joys and the magic of the life when I'm living really aligned, right? Flow, whatever we want to call it. it I have a... a 
a new awareness inside my body that for me, this is where it sits. Do you have any experience about mind, body, and soul integration for yourself? I do. It, uh, I would say that when I'm um, working hard to pretend grace doesn't exist, mm-hmm. and I'm operating in a in kind of a duality and a separateness yeah. uh, construct, uh, what I watch is the um, in, inside myself, in my experience, my intellect became the power center. And it was in a command and control of my imagination and my heart and my intuitive gut. Uh, and and the, the thing that has been interesting to me is that um, that's also when I was trying to turn away from grace and do without it. And for me, grace is a powerful integrating agency that when I exhaust myself trying to let one of those centers of awareness dominate and command and control all the others. Uh And I get tired enough and I can't continue that. Now grace welcomes me back. And for me, it's also the, the uh, agency that allows the integration to move from resistance to opening to the fact that it's already integrated. Mm-hmm. So the whole time I was pretending my intellect was in control, when yeah. in reality I had an integrated system just waiting for me to notice it. And now what I watch is as I look at my intellect and my imagination, my relating center in my heart, power center and solar plexus, I look at gut instinct, I look at intuition, uh, and then I bring soul into the mix. Yeah. What I continue to watch is the the more I see myself as solid, separate, uh, the more I tend to move up into my head and try to control the other parts. Mm-hmm. The more I get exhausted in not being able to persist in that because it hasn't worked for me, mm-hmm. the more I'm willing to surrender to the subtler dimensions of who I am, the more I awaken to the integrated nature of who I am. And that's for me where the soul has really come in as a tangible aspect of my being. And I experience her as always connected to source, Mm -hmm. always available to provide guidance. And it's the aspect of me that is delights in not knowing and will guide me when everything I know isn't working. Yeah. And uh, after I got into a couple of risking, noticing that, trusting that, and going with that, now all the other centers of awareness that I'm aware of thus far are more willing to surrender their need to be in control and are willing to take their natural part of the whole. Yeah. And now only be responsible for what they're designed to do as part of the whole. And it's uh, really relaxing my intellect, not needing to know it all and control it all, mm-hmm. to being available with those gifts when they're required. But the sense of uh, in creating now, I don't set intention. Mm-hmm. That's what my mind used to do when it thought it needed uh-huh. to know and be in control. Now my soul uh, subtly hints at what's wanting to be born and the rest of those centers of awareness integrate in support of lending their gifts to give birth to that. 
So creativity for me is much more emergent as those centers of awareness are experienced in wholeness and integration. Yeah. And it's one of the things I'm really quietly um, grateful for our current times of disruption and polarization. The more polarized we become, in my experience, was just the point at which my intellect was becoming exhausted. Yes. Trying to do what it's not designed to do and not being able to have the energy to do what it's designed to do, to surrender the, the control to a deeper, subtler part in terms of the source and to, to become aware of the source and what it was inviting through soulful awareness. Uh, my intellect would have never surrendered to that had <laughs> I not gotten myself polarized and separated and frustrated and disturbed enough to, to surrender in exhaustion. Yeah, yeah. So surrendering and suffering come up a lot when we talk about grace as kind of pathways into those types of things. Remembering is another one, another way to come into grace. So it's it's been really interesting to go through these conversations with folks and find so many different portals um, and possibilities about how any single person may enter in and out of grace over their lifetime. So it's been exciting to see. So you mentioned soul and self, right? Um, for our listeners that this isn't maybe common language for them, soul being essence, self being more egoic kind yeah. of thing, our head, however that's defined for you. Um, are you clear about what your purpose around um, this time around the sun is? I would say when I was um, identified as self, I thought I did. Got it. And so five years ago, I would have told you my purpose. And I would have said it with a quality of confidence and certainty mm -hmm. um, that has proven to not be true. Mm. But also played a really important role to exhaust me enough to surrender. <laughs> to uh, being on purpose. Mm -hmm. What I notice when I trust source through my soul and I surrender all the other aspects of my being to be in support of it, it's really interesting. I have no idea what my purpose is because uh, I'm realizing it comes from the aspect of me that's not knowable. Got it. And so now I've relaxed needing to try to articulate it. And now rather than trying to answer the question, what's your purpose? I try to check to see, is it possible to dissolve that question with my sheer presence? So when I'm aligned with source and my soul is channeling instruction to all the other awareness centers in my body to work as a whole system, Mm -hmm. in service to my role here, if there is such a thing, or in sync with my purpose, if there is such a thing, it will be evident in my energetic presence. And thereby, they, what I keep watching is my urge to answer the question has moved to a quality of presence that dissolves the question, mm -hmm. uh, where I answer the question not with words or concepts, but I allow my loving presence to be the evidence of what it is such that words aren't required. And that's really, it's so much fun to see. Yeah. I get triggered back into trying to know it or can I just keep relaxing into subtly being it? 
more and more fully, more and more lovingly, more and more openly, with more curiosity. And I find that surrendering into it and allowing the nature of how my presence shifts to dissolve the question rather than attempt to answer it is really valuable. Yeah. But I'm also really grateful I applied my intellect and my imagination to try to answer it for years. Mm -hmm. uh, because it, that was really rich and it helped me become aware enough to surrender to this subtler aspect, where without all of that, I would have never surrendered to this subtler aspect because it would yeah. be scary. That is so, you, you brought, as usual, you're bringing some contemplation that I've had because I get this question equally and I have like a little tagline that I'll give to answer the question. However, um, in recent interviews around Ubuntu and what we're creating up here, uh, I've answered, and I'm wondering if I'm answering it more from this more subtle plane, I'm going to have to go contemplate this later because what I'm doing is I'm answering it with I'm here, but the fact that I'm here goes unnoticed. Beautiful. And, Beautiful. and I don't know where that came from, but I mean, that is the essence of that. I'm out of the way, but I'm, but I'm not disconnected. You know what I mean? So that's where I think, I yeah. think both are valuable. Yeah. I think uh, doing the work of distilling, discerning, and articulating purpose reminds me of training wheels on a bicycle. Mm -hmm. It really helps early on. Mm -hmm. And it, for me, it, it cultivates subtler awareness. Mm -hmm. It cultivates an inquiry deeper within. Uh, and that subtler awareness also is preparing me to, once I've really distilled it and I've got it nailed, to let it go because it's yeah. no longer required yeah. conceptually. Yeah. And now at that place, it was safe enough to surrender to this place that, oh, um, I do have a purpose, but what it is is none of my damn business. <laughs> <laughs> there's so much like playfulness and liberation in that. I mean, it just to just let go of that is, Yeah. Thank you for that. That's that's a really nice one to to be in in space with. Hmm. Okay, are you ready for the next tenant? You bet. Okay. I love this. <laughs> I know I've been having so much fun. Okay, so tenant two is the evolving. I mean, tenant three is transparency. So this is transparency with self and others. I know that you working with emerging leaders wherever they are in the chain of command, and certainly for myself doing the same. This is, a, this is a knee buckler for people, right? Yeah. And, and so when we talk about this, one of the things that I'll venture into, and so I'm going to ask you the question, is when did you first become aware of the roles, the mask, the hats, whatever, that you played inside your own life? I would say at about the age of four or five, I became aware uh, that that's the nature of how life was played. Mm -hmm. And at that age, it made no sense to me. I was in, in a, I grew up on a hundred acre farm, 40 acres or so woods, mm -hmm. and I was in nature all the time. And I was really caught by my being present in nature, how alive the wholeness of life was and these subtler levels. Then I went into first grade 
And it was evident immediately I'm in a system that's out of touch with what I've been in my whole life till now. And um, it was really interesting because it was so traumatizing. My first day of school, I burst into tears and they had to remove me from the classroom and I had to be sent home because I couldn't settle down. And then we had a Groundhog Day of repeating that every day for about six weeks. Wow. I didn't make it through a day of school for the first several weeks of first grade. And I think a lot of it was my system was not knowing what to do with, wait a minute, I've been in nature my whole life, and now I'm in this, and what is this? Um, And it became apparent after five or six weeks of this rinsing and repeating these people are serious about me continuing <laughs> to need to come here. <laughs> <laughs> they keep bringing and, me back. And I, I, uh, so I started to adapt yeah. and, and uh, really comply. And then within four months, I had a life-threatening heart disease and had to be taken out of the rest of first grade. Interesting. Well, it was really interesting to me that um, it was heartbreaking on some level mm-hmm. to go out of this connectedness to this subtlety of the beauty of true nature and, and in nature and integrated systems that were thriving occurred. And then to be into a system that didn't, it, nothing about it felt right. Mm-hmm. Um, and then to have my physical heart respond in that way. Yeah. Um, and then it was it, the, the whole um, just early experience of that. Later on, I remember at about 33, I had another crisis that occurred in a retreat setting mm-hmm. that um, I, I became aware at that time I shut down and protected my heart to get through whatever this was. Mm. And then at 33, it's time to crack it back open and start to resume uh, inquiry into that deeper, subtler relationship with what I was in touch with in the first five years that I had to wall off and do without for uh, nearly 30 years and then was able to risk coming back home to it. Wow, I have not heard that story before. That's, That's powerful. When I look at transparency now, for me, mm-hmm. uh, during the period of time where I walled off my heart, mm-hmm. I had to form um, images of myself that I would begin to present. Yes. Uh, so when I look at ego formation, one thing I've become aware of in my own experience is that um, my ego is the root of my idea of being solid and separate. Mm -hmm. And uh, so when I look at self, I think of self as two polar opposite images I have of myself. Mm -hmm. One that overinflates itself and pretends to be more than what's true. One that undervalues and belittles itself and pretends to be less than what's true. Mm -hmm. And then there's my true nature that I was alive in in those first five years that I had to put a lid on and protect. Mm-hmm. to survive what I was in, and then formulate these two to get myself through that. Yeah. And when I look at transparency, 
It's deeply risky. Both of these self-structures that I've come to know more intimately in myself are rooted in a common belief. Uh, the conclusion that I'm not enough in a world that is scarce and there's not enough. Well, and then this one pretends to be more to make sure it gets its share. Fair. This pretends to be less. Well, what's amazing to me, transparency is the kiss of death to both of those. Yes. The, the fact that as soon as uh, either both of those have been terrified of being found out to be fraudulent. Yes. My true nature, which has always been, been there, kind of like the grace we were talking about earlier. Mm -hmm. Grace is more and more evidence that I've surrendered my attachment and identification with these two polar opposite self-structures. And I'm inhabiting and allowing my true nature to come through and inform what I think and feel and say and do. When that's in place, transparency isn't optional. Mm -hmm. When I'm being real, the idea of is it safe to be transparent doesn't compute (laughs) because it's not an option. But when I'm identified with being more than that or less than that, nothing's more terrifying to me than transparency. Uh, Why I think it's so essential in grace is because when I start to be willing to out myself to see my big inquiry with all three of these is, um, is there an assumption upon which each of them rest? And if there is, is it true consistently? Mm. And oftentimes I find out it's not true, but I keep pretending it is. <laughs> so then I go deeper to say, hey, well, if it's an assumption that's not true, that each, each self-structure rests on, let me go subtler and deeper to see What's the self that believes that? And does it exist? Ah. Well, that's been an absolute mind-blowing game change. Because now I can welcome my less than self in when it's triggered. Mm -hmm. I can open to see what's the assumption that its disturbance rests upon. Mm. I can invite it to begin to experiment to see if that's consistently true. And if it's not, and I can't continue to pretend it is, I can drop deeper to see, oh, it's the less than self. Yeah. Let me welcome it and make all the room available for it to see if it exists. And each time I do that, the grace we talked about at the beginning of the call is the source that's capable of that. Yes. It welcomes my less than self when I'm fully identified with it. And it invites it in and it makes room for it. Mm-hmm. And all of a sudden I'm going, wait a minute, that's transparency. And I'm not used to being transparent. Well, when that quality of graceful, loving presence yes. welcomes my less than or more than self in and makes room for it exactly as it is, uh, each time I've gotten to that inquiry, I open to make room for it, welcome it in to see if it exists. And thus far, its non-existence has become more subtly conscious in each moment. And now I'm more alive in this soulful connecting connection to source. Yeah. 
Uh, so there, transparency is not an option, but in these other two places where I've spent most of my existence, <laughs> not now, not ever. <laughs> yeah, no, that's beautifully. I like how you were tying grace into the, the transparency and how transparency really is like a platform for grace to start to show herself to you and, and um, a gentle, safe place for all forms of being to come into. And so for me, every time I center and ground in my true nature, grace greets me. Yes. And it's evident it's always been there. Yes. <laughs> but as soon as I pretend to be less or more than what's true. Yes. Oh, now I'm pretending grace doesn't exist or there's not enough of it for me. <laughs> and or you. I've got what I need, but there's no more for you, oh, yeah. right? Yeah, limited grace. So it's just true. not a thing. It's not a thing. <laughs> okay, tenant five, connecting self and universe. So this has been really interesting to have people um, help myself and the people that will be listening to this podcast understand the term collective. So we talk about a human collective, a universal collective, an animal collective, whatever. But when we talk about it from a leader's perspective, if you're coming from a grace-centeredness, um, what do you think, if anything, the collective relevance is in that? What I continue to see as collective is as my identity as being solid and separate mm -hmm. uh, dissolves into subtler dimensions of my being. I call it, uh, it transforms from solid and separate to porous and part of. Mm -hmm. So for me, the, at first when I'm still operating out of a solid, separate, polarized dynamic, mm -hmm. I think of collective being the, the, all the pieces as a whole, part of a whole. Yeah. But I'm still relating to them as pieces separate from me. Mm. The more that life, uh, the more I see that pretending to be less or more is the cause of my own disturbance. And the more exhausted I get from that habit, the more I begin to surrender into true nature and allow it to guide what I think, feel, say, and do. All of a sudden, now I'm experiencing my physical body as porous and part of everything. Yeah. Uh, and I, I am beginning to experience more and more conscious awareness of my being in unmanifest subtlety. What the hell is that? Yeah. I have no idea, but there's a palpable experience of it in a subtlety. Mm -hmm. And when that's alive in me, suddenly now the collective is the, what I hear people talk about as a context of unity. Yes. Now, all of a sudden, there are no parts. Uh -uh. There's just this subtlety from no thing to whatever manifest form. And what I watch is the pulse speed of the universe continues to breathe us into and out of existence. Uh -huh. And if we're conscious of who we are in and out of manifest existence, uh -huh. oh, now all of a sudden, collective is wholeness. Yeah. Uh, but for me to, to, to experience collective as uh, pieces and parts of a possible whole 
really valuable as I was surrendering the habit of pretending to be less or more than what's true, mm-hmm. coming home to what's true in the process, it becomes more natural to move from needing to connect parts to create a whole and the exhaustion of that surrendering into the subtle dimensions of who all of us are that come into and out of form in every breath and in birth and death. Mm -hmm. Oh, what if we could be conscious of all of that simultaneously? Mm -hmm. And now that what if is becoming more and more of an embodied experience for me. And so now when I look at what's going on with different parts of a system, Mm -hmm. uh, I no longer experience it as separate from me. Yeah, It's happening in the field of who I am. Mm-hmm. Can I center and ground in that source of grace, loving presence, and compassion to be with what's happening in all of those places? Mm-hmm. And can I trust that what's going on in the whole is of service to my subtler surrender into uh, the wholeness of who we all are? And so far, that continues to really serve. uh, It's immensely valuable for me to continue to stay in that practice of when I see something going on in a system that I'm working in Mm -hmm. or in the world that I'm a part of, Mm -hmm. um, can I open to make room for it, trusting that it's here to guide all of us into this experience of wholeness? (sighs) (laughs) thank goodness our capacity to trust this kind of stuff seems to be infinite (laughs) (laughs) thank god is right yeah okay so the tenant six is co-creating and this is where innovation or creativity would kind of be for um whether you're leading self or others yes so this um it's kind of a hot topic nowadays anyway. It wasn't intentional that it would be, but a serendipity perhaps. Um, what role does diversity play in your life? A more and more important uh, part. Um, the, what I continue to see is the, the identities I formed in the lesson more than self mm-hmm. are full of blinders. Yeah. And uh, when I'm inhabiting those, I think and feel and say things and behave in ways that aren't congruent with who I really am. Um, And when I look at all that's going on around uh, equity, diversity, and inclusion now, Uh what I love about it is all of us inside our own bodies are immensely diverse. Yes. The diversity of any natural system is almost infinite. Uh, And so now what I start to see is uh, when I'm encountering difference, I'm actually being blessed with a divine gift to awaken me to a blind spot that my lesser more than self formed to survive a time that it was needed. Uh And I can now thank that self structure and that blind spot for having allowed me to survive that. Uh And now I can let it be. And now I can inhabit a closer, more intimate relationship with that difference that once threatened me Uh or that I didn't notice or that I didn't appreciate or that I was actually uh, disallowing. Uh Um, 
and welcome it and thank it for helping wake me up. Yeah. And what I continue to watch when I look at polarization and disruption, mm-hmm. one of the biggest places I'm now working with leaders and individuals is what if rather than constricting and resisting that disruption or polarization as a threat, mm-hmm. uh, is it possible we can access a place in us that welcomes it and wanders into it to see what is it here to awaken Mm-hmm. so that I can further embody and creatively express it. And what innovative ideas is it here to usher in that we never would have come to without it? Yeah. Well, it's really cool when I go from feeling threatened by diversity yeah. uh, or ashamed of my blind spots mm-hmm. to immensely grateful for the pressure that diversity puts into a system mm-hmm. that supports awakening and potential realization and innovative ideas. Uh, so now I really see that the, the whole move in diversity, equity, and inclusion right now, mm-hmm. it's a systemic wake-up call Yes, that's yeah. inviting all of us to move from solid separate parts to this wholeness that we're talking about. Mm-hmm. And I view it as a divine gift uh, I, I, uh, divine gift giver of awareness. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. What I often have come, one of the humorous things that I've uncovered is uh, that assholes have proven to become divine gift givers of awareness if I'm open and receptive to them when they come. <laughs> and so this practice of can I open and be curious about a major disturbance yeah. Or a difference that threatens me. Yeah. Literally, I am watching what I once I judged those people who were sure. different harshly, mm-hmm. and and then made all kinds of stuff up about them mm-hmm. that was completely and utterly BS. Yeah. And and now because they came into my life and disturbed me, I begin to become aware of a blind spot that has me disconnected from reality. Yeah. And now they get make me interested to get curious to come to know them in a more intimate, loving, mutually respectful, beneficial way. Yeah. And I'm having some of the most profound interactions with people from every different walk of life now. Mm-hmm. And the beauty is every one of them invites me to notice another blinder mm-hmm. that I can openly admit and I can, in their support, lay it down mm-hmm. and then begin to see what I'm able to see now. Yes. And now the intimacy of our connection. Mm-hmm. It's not that we're now connected and we were disconnected. This intimate connectedness that's always been there is now yep. conscious in both of us. Yes. Wow. Yes. Talk about transformative and healing. It sure is. It sure is. It's a gift if we can, it's a shift in perspective, right? Yes. Yeah. yeah. And when I look at, there's so many reps of practice in that gift right now. Mm-hmm. And I think this one also, when I can start to open and be, and, and admit my blind spot, well, now the, the transparency is in support of this tenant as well. Sure, sure. So hand in hand. So would you say that perhaps there's a play in here for gratitude? 
it's really an amazing thing. The more I come home to who I really am mm-hmm. and we really are, there's certain aspects like grace, like gratitude, like loving presence. Mm-hmm. Uh, what I notice now is when I light up in gratitude, that's the confirmation that I'm centered and grounded in my true nature and connected to our wholeness. Yes. Uh, And it's really different than when my more than self pretends to be grateful. (laughs) Yes. It's really different than allowing the gratitude that's alive in me to just emanate from me. Yeah. Uh, So for me, every time I come home to grace, I don't think I've ever been in the presence of grace where gratitude hasn't been pulsing through my system. That's exactly right. And it's it's why in the book, I... I explore the possibility for me, the truth that gratitude is the entry point for grace. I mean, it's just, it's, it's it's foundational to that perspective and experience. And I do think that practicing gratitude, Mm -hmm. even from a more or less than self, Mm -hmm. I've done a lot of that and wouldn't trade any of that either. No. Uh, And there's a, so for me, there's a difference between uh, efforting to, show gratitude Uh and being gratitude. Absolutely. Being grateful. Uh, But the the being of it, I don't think could be possible without all the efforting. I Uh, think, yeah, that would be my path to it too. I'm, I'm eager to meet someone who found a different way there, but for me, because I spend a lot of time up here, like you do, it had to be a conscious practice that became unconscious that then unfolded the next thing. How did you discover the um, gratitude as a gateway to the grace? Because much like what you were saying when you so eloquently said the gift of the asshole, right? Um, I had like everyone, you know, I get, I am both the asshole and the receiver of the asshole. I know I'm both of those. (laughs) And so when I would, when that person or experience would come in and I would immediately go undesirable, I would call it undesirable or not part of the plan, or not the intention, whatever. Um, Right in that moment, because my gratitude practice was robust enough and deep enough um, to my doing that all of a sudden through my being, I started to watch the gratitude be in play there. It wasn't a, it was no longer a conscious activity. So when, and I'm not perfect at this, but so for example, when the neighbor does the thing the neighbor does that just irritates me for whatever reason, and so I judge and call names and create a story, I would see myself doing this and go, oh, wait a minute, there's an entry point possibility. Would you like to take it? Most times I take it, sometimes I don't. <laughs> That's really great. Yeah. I love it as a, as a gateway into or a doorway into. Yeah. Uh, because it, it, it's uh, one way I want to play with this uh, is um, when I know that I'm out of sync with grace, mm-hmm. And I drop into finding one thing I'm grateful for. Yes. Uh, that, that really feels like it it's a, uh, will be a great centering practice to play with. Yeah, yeah, I think so. Let me know how it goes. I will. Okay. All right. The last uh, tenant here, tenant six, is compassionately power, powerful. So, so when I first started teaching this tenant or sharing this tenant with the world in the leadership space, specifically female executives is a place I play a fair amount. 
I would hear, well, I can't be compassionate because I'll get walked over and I can't be powerful because they call me a bitch. That's kind of the realm, right? It was this or that thinking. Um, And so this has been a really interesting one that when a leader finds the connection point that always was there, but not, not visible or not experienced, there's a lot of light bulbs that start to go off for people. And I have found that the teams around the leaders that have this potential um, capability refining within them, uh, they settle down and they settle in to the, it, uh, the team's own gracefulness, which has been a really lovely thing to witness. So when I mentioned the idea of compassionately powerful, what comes up for you? The, um, it, it's real parallel with vulnerability. Mm-hmm. Uh, for me, the I would say that I've been conditioned to see compassion as weakness, mm-hmm. and it's something that um, only saintly people do. Yeah. <laughs> um, mm-hmm. And the uh, other part is um, much like vulnerability was as in my conditioning, that was the kiss of death, which made me so afraid of transparency. Yes. Uh, if you could see how weak I am, it would be over. Mm-hmm. And what I continue to watch, both with compassion and vulnerability, uh, both have a quality of risking being real at any cost mm-hmm. that I'm literally watching in leadership circles now. Mm-hmm. This transformative shift from kiss of death and weakness to cornerstone of effective leadership. <laughs> Well, and what I'm loving is the disruption and the polarization are rendering everything I know in my intellect and in my instinctual gut mm-hmm. to not know what to do. Yes. And that not knowing panic is allowing a subtler surrender into soulful awareness that can access source and is capable of trusting it. Yes. And when I drop into there, Vulnerability and compassion move from uh, kiss of death and weakness into risking real is the only option. Mm-hmm. Transparency isn't a question. It's not optional. Well, yeah. now I'm watching more source-infused and informed soulful guidance coming through leaders that suddenly put both vulnerability and compassion as cornerstones of effective leadership, mm-hmm. especially when the conditions are not knowable. Yeah. Which is the life we're in, right? I mean, oh. we're getting trained in that in the past 24 months. Um, like at least no other time that I've know about, but I'm sure there were some in the Egyptian times when I think about it, but yeah, I mean, nothing's knowable. And that, that's the part <laughs> for me where I would, my intellect would never surrender Yeah. if it's still new. Yeah. My gut instinct wouldn't surrender if it's still mm-hmm. new. Uh, and then when they go from terrified about not knowing, mm-hmm. to catching a glimpse of a part of me that's at peace and not knowing, because mm-hmm. it realizes none of it's knowable. Mm-hmm. Wow, can I get my intellect and my yeah. instinctual gut and my intuition and my heart? working in support of that source uh, informed soulful guidance through my intuition 
Yeah. And that is becoming more and more natural and less and less threatening as I continue to play with it. Yeah. Do you have time for a couple more questions? I do. Okay. These are specific, um, specific for you. I'm, I'm curious. Um, now I'm going to change the questions to what I wrote down because all of this, they have like a million questions I want to ask you, but the, the one that's coming to the front is I picked you as an example of a graceful human being because you are that to me, like in your beingness, I experienced that vibrational exchange of energy with you and you've articulated um, here now something that I'm going to be playing with for a while around purpose being a really good front point and exercise to go through to move from the doing or the action into the being. Is there a tip or two that you could give a listener about how the heck one even begins to move from doing to being? It's a really interesting thing because our education system and my experience as I went through it uh, focused as the pinnacle being conceptual understanding. So as soon as you understood it conceptually, mm-hmm. which is mostly a head game, um, then you could get an A and you'd be at the top of the heap. Mm-hmm. Um, and then when I left school and went into life, the concepts weren't working. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and it didn't seem like anybody around me was noticing. And I started becoming frustrated because if I'm espousing a concept and it's not working, uh-huh. uh, is there a bridge from conceptual understanding to actually being what the concept claims? Uh-huh. And that was mostly in leadership roles, frustrated by everything I was learning about leadership wasn't working. Uh So I started just doing experiments with subgroups of people on my team, Uh involving them in co-creating together. Uh And as soon as we moved into a co-creation frame Uh and we were peers in Uh co-creating, all of a sudden now the supremacy of conceptual knowledge that comes from higher ed started to give way to common sense that's road tested in life to see if it's worth a damn. And if it is, we keep evolving. And if it isn't, we discard it. Yeah. Well, in that, that was in a distribution center environment with about 130 people. Uh I watched some of the most dynamic, beautiful, powerful, creative beings born in front of me that I've ever seen by engaging that 130 people in ways forward through really tough challenges. And the power of what we created and the degree to which they began to really inhabit themselves with the quality of loving presence and confidence was absolutely stunning to me. And that really set me on a course now of, um, I say, whatever you do, don't believe a word I say. Uh Road test it to see how full of it I am and help let me know that if I am. Yeah. (laughs) And that moves from conceptual knowing to an admission it's not knowable let's just stay in the mix and so that's where i really see that practice when you have a concept that is is intellectually stimulating Uh great 
make sure you take it to inform an experiment that creates an experience and then debrief the experience to see whether it worked. And if it did, keep road testing it. Yeah. And if it didn't, discard it. And so concepts that. and opinions mm-hmm. uh, of experts and people who know nothing are all really valuable informers of experiments. Mm-hmm. But my whole work now is to get people to support and trust your own direct experience more than other opinions or concepts. Mm-hmm. Those are informers of experiments, not to believe, be believed or trusted. Yeah. But start to inherently trust your own direct experience and keep evolving it through more experimentation. And it has an aliveness about it. Yes. When we get into that cycle that we let go of the need to know. Because we're so caught in the curiosity of the inquiry to see whether this concept or opinion has any substance to it. So how do you, um, I'm feeling the need to bring this into like down into some really practical terms for people. When, When someone's willing to do that and let's say their environment doesn't foster the, the willingness to, have a perceived failure, right? The, the throwaway one, right? Is there anything that someone inside a culture, it's not that they're felt that they think failure is bad, but they certainly haven't gotten good at failure and failure still isn't rewarded in any way. Is there a way to get comfortable in that, in in that type of an environment in micro ways as you're learning this skill? The most powerful way I see is inviting people to notice so the first thing I do is start with what everybody claims is working uh-huh. uh, because most people claim it is, but don't have much evidence that it is. Sure. So sure. now I want to get into real micro experiences where um, telling people what to do and how to do it and when it needs to get done is the way to lead. Okay. Let, let's give that a try. Yeah. Um, I'm going to go out and tell somebody what to do, how to do it, and when it needs to get done. And then I'm going to step back and observe and see how well does it work. Uh I'm going to ask my boss to tell me what to do and how to do it and when to get it done. And I'm going to see how it feels to be on the receiving end of it. Uh And I'm going to go do it and then check. But every time we test, then we're going to debrief. How was that for you? So I call it inviting, noticing what's the fundamental assumption And now let's test it and notice, is it working? Yeah. Uh, And 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 if it is, now do we want to keep it stagnant as it is or let it evolve as we continue to experiment and explore? Well, I find letting it evolve is superior to trying to to protect it and defend it. Yeah. Uh, And the other part is we don't have to get into jousting matches of whose opinion is right. Let's go test it and see how full of shit both of us are. (laughs) And then learn to really celebrate when we're full of it, because now we know what works more than we did before. Yeah. And that's the part. The two things invite people to notice Mm -hmm. and then see, can we move from a defending what we know to a curiosity of how full of what we know might be Mm -hmm. that if we liberate what's not actually true, Mm-hmm. and fill it with something that's actually working. Yeah. Now we're out of concept into being it. Yeah, and not beautiful. Pre- 
uh, proclaiming it. Mm-hmm. I quietly be it, and I keep evolving it. Yeah. And my experience is trusted more than opinions and concepts. Yeah. Beautiful. Is there any last words of wisdom you want to give about how someone can integrate grace into their leadership practice? I think the biggest thing I would say is uh, turn inward mm-hmm. and uh, find it already inside of you. Yeah. And notice how it's always been there always willing and able to welcome all of you home. Uh, and the, the way I practically uh, play with this is whenever I'm disturbed, I tune in to see, can I open and make room for my own contracted resistant disturbance to be exactly as it is? Mm-hmm. Um, and the, the meditative practice game I play is when I notice constriction in my system. Can I simply open to make more room for it? Some people like to zoom out. Yes. Uh, some like to sink open. Mm-hmm. But whatever it is, can I be, become more expansive to allow that to be exactly as it is while suspending my urge to judge it or fix it or change it? So I move from the urge to judge, fix, or change. I let the urge rise up and I let it move out. And what I'm seeing is as they rise up and move out, can I move to a place of allowing it to be as it is? Um, And what I find is only grace is capable of that practice. Yeah. Grace is able to allow my own urge to judge, fix, or change what is to rise up and move out without acting on it. And when that occurs, now I realize, I check, was was the grace ever constricted and resistant and disturbed during the whole process? Well, usually I don't know for sure, so I got to practice it again and again and again. Uh What's cool is when I can be gracefully present to my own constricted, disturbed resistance, I notice the grace isn't constricted, resistant, or disturbed. Yeah. And now all of a sudden I'm beginning to understand my conditioning and create a loving coexistence with it to see are the assumptions on which it rests true and does the self-structure that's formed out of it actually exist? (laughs) And I'm delighted with whatever I find in that inquiry. So that ability to be graceful with yourself especially in your own internal disturbances, Mm -hmm. open space to see if grace can make room for it and see what wakes up in you in that game. And it just has been, continues to be a life-changing game for me. Yeah. Thank you. So amazing to be with you. This has been an absolute delight. It has been a delight. And and just thank you for showing up and thank you for continuing to refine, let me use that word for you, that which is in you already. Thank you. And uh, I, it's, it's such an honor to witness you inhabiting the courage and the grace and the love and the passion you have for your life's work <laughs> and to surrender this deeply to it. It is, it is a real 
rich experience to bear witness to that and inspires me to re-up my commitment to the game. (laughs) (laughs) Yay, I'm looking forward to that. Game on. (laughs) Okay. Love you so much, Lexi. I love you too. Bye. Thank you for tuning in to The Power of a Graceful Leader. Please join your host, Alexis Thompson, for another enlightening edition of the program soon on the Voice America Empowerment Channel.